Hey guys, welcome to episode 57 of The True Crime Couple. As always, I'm Kay. And I'm John. We just wanted to thank everyone for the five-star reviews that we've been getting. We really appreciate when you take the time out of your day to show us some love, so thank you very much. You guys are the best. We also wanted to let you know that we just released another episode on Patreon, on the Poly Class case, which ended up being like a crazy roller coaster. It was like three episodes within one episode. And that case always got to me. Polly Class was abducted during a sleepover party from her own house. And the man that took her, based on his history, is truly a real-life boogeyman. And again, we switched up our Patreon tiers. So what we do is we release a Patreon episode every three weeks. And that's in addition to our regular episodes. And the last one was for Patreons donating at the $5 level and up. So in three weeks, we have another Patreon episode for everybody. And if you want to be a part of the Patreon family, you can donate at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And we promise the episodes are always full and commercial free. Okay, so this episode topic was actually picked by our Patreons through the polling that we do with them. Okay, so this episode topic is tragic And it's heartbreaking. And we just want to say, um, because we didn't do disclaimers in the past, but this episode does deal with crimes against children. So if that's something that bothers you, we just want to let you know ahead of the game so you can prepare yourself. And what is so sad here is that this story had the potential to be one of the most inspiring stories this country could have ever produced. And the women who were the perpetrators of this case really tried hard to make it so. However, their perfect lives of travel, music, love, and fun that they were always projecting on social media was a far cry from the nightmare that was the reality for six adopted African-American children who were thrust from an unpredictable foster care system into hell. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Jennifer Jean Hart grew up with her two brothers and parents in Huron, South Dakota. The family grew up close. Jen would ride her bike alongside her father as they traveled around town, him towing along her two brothers in a wagon. Each child was encouraged to participate in the arts, and each of them excelled. Jen herself chose to play the trumpet, a skill she was able to show at the church annual Christmas show. Something that is interesting about Jen is that she wasn't raised religious, but she actually sought her own Lutheran faith. And she chose herself to become baptized at an early age, which is which is kind of rare because normally when you're in a family, I, I mean, I would assume, I mean, at least for mine, it was this way. I mean, we were raised Catholic, so that's just what everybody did. Well, sometimes if like your family is not super religious, sometimes you seek out religion yourself, yeah, because you see your friends around you going to church or having faith, and like so you kind of seek that out yourself as well. Yeah, I mean, I would say, because even though we were raised Catholic, we really didn't, you know, practice much. But I know, like like you were kind of saying, I mean, I know, like, I would go with my friends who would go to right. church or whatever, you know. So I would assume it was probably, like, a yeah. situation similar to that. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. Good for her. Yeah. Jen was always trying to break barriers. At a young age, she made it known that she wanted to play on the baseball team and not on the girls' softball team because she just wanted to play baseball. But when she was 12 years old, her parents got divorced. However, her father only moved across town, and the three children saw him every weekend. She asked to move in with her father a little bit after the divorce. And her father worked really far away, so that's really why he only saw his kids on the weekends, even though he lived in the same town, was that he would be on job sites that were like hundreds of miles away. But when Jen asked to live with him, he would come home every night, sometime traveling hundreds of miles to get home. But the situation started happening where she wouldn't be home or she would lie to him about where she was going. And this became too much for Jen's father. And she had to go back and live with her mother because the situation just really wasn't working out. 
After graduating high school, she first enrolled in Augustana University, a local school, but then later transferred to Northern State University, which is located three hours away. It was there that she met Sarah Gingler. The two women quickly began dating. They were both studying to become teachers. Those who knew the couple said that they were madly in love and instantly connected. However, hints of trouble were present even early on in this relationship, when Jen pled guilty to petty theft. In January of 2000, Jen Hart stole a pair of Nike shoes and 25 packs of sports trading cards from a local store. According to the police report, Jen told the arresting officer that she had no idea why she did what she did. She went on to tell him that she had a lot going on lately, and that could be the reason why she did it. And the officer recalled being taken off guard by this. Like, that's a really strange explanation as to why you would steal something. And the following year, Jen would actually stopped talking to her father. She claimed it was because he didn't accept her lesbian relationship, but he says that she never even told him about her relationship. He thought that the two would reconcile soon, but unfortunately the two never spoke again. And while Sarah earned her degree, Jen dropped out of school in 2002. As time went on, Jen began to push more and more people out of her life. And those she no longer talked to still got to watch her life but from afar, as Jen began her perfect projection of her life and Sarah's life on social media. Jen and Sarah wanted a fresh start, so the couple chose to move to Alexandria, Minnesota. Their two-story house was on a busy street that took them directly to where they both worked, at the local mall. The women were married, and Sarah took Jen's last name. They became the Hart family. But the women felt something was missing and they chose to become foster parents so they could eventually adopt. Their first foster child was a 15-year-old girl who was placed with them because of behavior issues and truancy. She recalled that the first six months were good. She said that she was always busy with the couple. They constantly were going to events or going camping, and she said the women did many things with her that she never got to experience before. She recalls Sarah being quiet and Jen being the outgoing one, and sometimes manic at times. When she got an idea, they always had to get up and go. Over time, though, things began to get strange. Jen and Sarah kept wanting the young girl to be made over. They would buy her clothes and makeup, but the girl wanted to remain more of a tomboy. Co-workers of the couple remember this being a point of contention, as the makeovers would often happen in front of them, because both women worked at the mall. The girl also remembers when they went to Lambeau Fields with a football to get signed after the game that they had all attended. And when the player that Jen was looking forward to meeting came out, he signed the teenage girl's ball and not Jen's. The girl remembers Jen being furious over this. So mad, in fact, that she refused to talk to the girl for days. So I find that so bizarre that you would get upset over that. I mean, you have to realize, I mean, if you know, these pros, they come out, they see their fans, you know they're going to gravitate towards the children because they're the ones that remember this. And it, sha- it, it it's could, a special moment. It's a special moment that could shape them and make them feel so happy. And you make them someone's day, you make their year, <laughs> you know? Well, I actually think this reveals what has happened so far between the child that they're fostering and themselves. It's revealing because it shows first that maybe they are immature, like maybe like Jen and Sarah aren't adults yet. So it is hard when you do decide to have children and you decide to foster and especially them doing it at a young age and you get someone who's older. It's not really like they've taken the parent role. They've taken more of like the bigger sister role because their ages are so close. They could be sisters rather than parents and daughters. That's true. You also have to be selfless. I mean, whether you have your own child or you foster, like you said, right? you can't, you have to be completely selfless. You exactly. can't get like that. We also see early signs that they're trying to like just create this perfect life because you would think as a young lesbian couple and Jen herself was saying that whether or not her father didn't accept the relationship, she's claiming that he didn't. So you think she would understand not being accepted. So wanting to change the girl's appearance seems to contradict Jen's life experiences. But I think what overrides that is the fact that she's trying to project on social media this perfect relationship with mothers and daughter. Like, look what we're providing for her. Which, guess what? That's most people 
nowadays. It really is. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let's take a break to hear from our first sponsor. The teenage girl who is now in her 20s said that her and Jen would often get into little fights all the time. She said that she was only allowed to go out if it was for work or for school. The women made her get a job at Subway to try and teach her some responsibility. So while those on the outside said maybe the couple was too young to foster a teenager, others said that the women were slightly too controlling and they imposed too many rules and chores on the girl. Despite the harsh conditions, the girl intended to stay there until she was 18. Because she was in a good, steady living situation that provided the proper education, she wanted to take advantage of the situation. It would only be two more years. However, the Hearts had a goal of adopting children, and they knew that fostering was a way to become a better candidate for adoption. About a year into fostering the teenage girl, the Hearts were informed that she was going to be a big sister. And the girl was excited. She couldn't wait to take care of little siblings and not be so alone in the house. The Hearts, however, were not looking to adopt only one child. They were looking to adopt two sets of siblings from Texas. The first set of siblings' mother had another child on the way, which they planned to adopt as well. When the couple went to go meet the children, and just for factual purposes, I just want to talk figures with you. Um, The children actually came from Texas, and a lot of times, well, a lot of states actually place children with families even outside of the state, sometimes to take them away from the environment, just create a whole new environment for them, but also because the best family fit may not be in state. Right, I could see that. I mean, it's a good way to start the slate clean. Exactly. And then some, but those families get paid from the state from which the children came from. So the state of Texas would be paying the Hart family for their adoptions. And um, they pay anywhere between 400 and 545 per child per month. Now, the Hearts were looking to adopt six children. Um, there were two sets of siblings, three siblings each, and um, that would be the equivalent of $2,000 per month. So, I mean, it's a lot of money. I mean, it's kind of crazy that you yeah. get paid for that. Well, you do because that's like the cost of the child. And unfortunately, sometimes people do become foster parents for the for the wrong reason and they mismanage the use of that money because that money when it comes in it's not used to supplement your income as a couple you're still expected to have your income but that's an addition so those children could live because having six children is expensive so that's there to buy clothing and to buy food for them right exactly and a lot of people take advantage of that there's so many stories of that When the Hearts returned from Texas and visiting the potential children that they were going to adopt, they excitedly talked about their siblings with the young girl. She admittedly was very excited. About a week before the children were supposed to arrive from Texas, the teenage girl was taken to her mandatory therapist appointment by her two mothers. While in the session, the therapist informed her that she would not be returning to the Hart home. The girl was confused, hurt, and the very last thing a child in foster care should ever feel, abandoned. The hearts led her on to believe that she was going to continue to be a part of their family, but the whole time they knew she wouldn't. However, they didn't want to tell the girl that themselves. Instead, they had the therapist break the news to the young girl while they moved all of her things from their house to her new foster home so they wouldn't have to face the girl again. The hearts were now free to start their new perfect family. It just seems wrong. Yeah. I mean, obviously, all these children are in foster care, and at least, you know, services like this do exist. But at the same time, when you get comfortable with a family, even if they're not 100% great, it's still what you've learned to, like, accept and just be a part of. So the fact that you're getting kind of, like, ripped away from it and they're lying, they're not going to forget that. No, and I I feel like as taking the role of a foster parent, you should understand the emotionality of these children, and it's your job to build their social-emotional health. And if you are going to abandon them the way that they clearly already feel from their biological families, you're just perpetuating this cycle. So the way it should work is even if you don't want to continue fostering that child, unfortunately, that's the reality of the system, and that's what happens. 
but it's your job as a foster parent to make that transition easy and not hurt. And I feel like that's what they did here. Yeah. But a good side note here is that the teenage girl, her new family was a Christian youth pastor and his wife. And, you know, when she talks about her time with the hearts and then her time afterwards, she said that she was really angry, but her new foster father who was a youth pastor, taught her the power of forgiveness and that eventually she worked on forgiving that family so she could move on. Well, that's good. At least it was like a happy ending Yeah, so, I mean, I'm glad she was brought into a nice new home and then she was able to go to college, so. Yeah. That makes me feel better Better. about that part of the story. (laughs) The Hearts did not receive all six children that they would come to adopt all at once. In 2006, they received Marcus, eight years old, Hannah, four, and Abigail, two. And they came to live in Minnesota with the couple. The three children were all siblings, happy not to be divided. Two years later, three other children came to join them. They were Devante, five, Jeremiah, four, and Sierra, two. Those three were also siblings. From the moment all six children were living under the roof, Jen and Sarah Hart chronicled everything they did. But like many of us know... What was shown on social media can often be a facade. It seems to everyone who was watching, most of whom did not even speak to the couple, that the Hearts had a perfect, happy, and boundary-crossing family. They were an attractive, young, white lesbian couple who adopted six African-American children, most of whom were siblings with each other, so their families didn't have to be separated. According to the thousands of posts, it was clear that Jen stayed home to take care of the children while Sarah Hart worked. From Facebook, everything looked amazing. Jen taught the children to play the trumpet, as she did as a child. And during football season, she buzzed the logos of the teams the boys supported into their hair. Jen also pushed her likes on the children. She loved animals, they had a dog and several cats, the outdoors, and 80s pop culture. For example, for the 30th anniversary of the Goonies movie, she made costumes for all the kids, and had them dress up and take pictures. She also made a point to cheer on each individual child. Marcus won a geography bee. Hannah and Jeremiah recited the Greek alphabet. Jeremiah and Abigail taught a song that they learned in kindergarten to their younger sister, Sierra. Devante came home with a worksheet that listed his classmates' compliments. They said that he was a really great friend. But behind closed doors, something very different was happening. In total, Minnesota Child Welfare received six very troubling complaints anonymously placed against the Hart family. Two of the six were founded. In 2010, 18 months into all six being placed with the Hearts, one case went to court. During school one day, a teacher noticed large amounts of bruises on Abigail, who was six years old at the time. In the documents regarding the incident, Sarah Hart admits to having gotten carried away when punishing Abigail. When pressed as to what the incident was about, Sarah revealed it was about a penny. Her and Jen had found a penny in Abigail's pocket. When they asked her where she got it from, they believed that she was lying to them. The argument escalated and Abigail was bent over the bathtub and spanked. Sarah pleaded guilty and was convicted of misdemeanor assault. Based on the documents, this is, I mean, this is very disturbing on so many levels. But first, the girl had been spanked so hard over the bathtub that she had bruising both on her stomach and her backside. So that was more than just a spanking. And that means that she's most likely was like on the bathtub for a while, like leaning up against it. Right. She was on the edge of the tub. Also, um, two other things. Sarah Hart did not, even though she finished her degree, she did not become a teacher herself. She was working as a, at a manager at a clothing store. So, I mean, if she was teaching, she would lose her license over something like this. An interesting aside was that when Abigail told the teacher and when she talked to Child Protective Services, she said that Jen Hart was the one that had hit her. But Sarah Hart pleaded guilty and admitted to doing it. So what I think here is Sarah is taking the the blame for this but really jen hart was the one who did it i can see that i think that if you're fostering I mean, if you've adopted children now this is a huge deal 
You adopted these kids. Now you're abusing them. I think. I think the process should begin to get them taken away. I think all of them should be taken away now. Or a huge investigation should begin. One or the other. I look at it this way. If it's happened, if they were caught once, it's happened multiple times probably. It's possible. You know, I don't want to give anything away, but. Well, in addition to that, in a separate incident that occurred one year later, Hannah told a school nurse that she had not eaten. When the nurse called home asking if the child could have food brought in for her, um, Jennifer Hart arrived at the school. When she got there, she was enraged that Hannah would play what she said was the food card and that if that ever happened again, she was only to be given water. I don't think a child could ever play the food card. I think if a child's hungry, they should be allowed to eat. Yeah, I'm I mean, just, I'm just going to go out on a limb. I'm not a, a basic, I'm not a parent, but I would right, just I think that's a basic human assume need. one could eat. Yeah. During the incident, Jennifer, in front of the school nurse, shoved a banana and nuts into the girl's mouth. Because she was upset that she'd called for food. So I guess she was like, well, here's your food. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, the girl's nine years old. Eventually, a child welfare worker reported that the children's school stopped calling the hearts because the officials feared that the children would be punished. That's ridiculous of a school system. The yeah. school system should be calling Child Protective Services. Yeah, it's true. And I hope that's what they, they did. Other anonymous calls came in from neighbors that reported the children appeared to be severely malnourished and they were rarely seen outside and when they were seen they were walking around like soldiers now this is really interesting because in child abuse cases unfortunately we hear a lot of the time people don't report child abuse and really we are all obligated to report child abuse when we see it as if you're an adult you're obligated to report child abuse but in the case of the hearts People are calling all the time about this family. So it it's it sucks because in some cases you're like, oh, I wish people would have just called in and said, I'm seeing something wrong happen. But when you look at this case, people were calling all the time. And it just seems that they really weren't doing much about it. Right. Well, I think that there's the hearts did a really good job of putting up that facade of everything's right. Right. I see what you're saying. So when they went to go and investigate it, it looked like a completely different situation than the reality of it. Well, after all of these incidents, the children were pulled out of public school and Jennifer chose to homeschool them. According to Facebook, it was for a completely different reason. She said that the school was no longer a safe place for the children. It was there that they had to, as she said, face the worst of the worst. She said that all of the children had to face this, but Devante in particular faced physical attacks, death threats, name calling, and so much more on a daily basis. Now, Jen never posted about any of these problems or the child abuse arrests because now she had pictures to post about science class in the woods. See, to me, this screams do something about this, like someone intervene, because if you're taking them out of public school, right? You know what's going on. They don't want any more reports of any type of abuse or neglect right. coming from the school or whatever child services getting called about what they're doing or what they're finding on the children or yeah. whatever the issue may be. Yeah, I would think Child Protective Services would step in and ask a lot of questions about this because solely for the reason that homeschooling these children is going to be really difficult only because they are at such different developmental ages. So the curriculum that would have to exist for all the children to be, you know, held up to the rigor of an everyday academic school life would be really difficult for one person to do. Yeah, and I I just don't see that being productive at all. So, I don't know. That that screams just someone do something because it's just bizarre. If they're malnourished when they were in school around people, you think it's not going to get worse? Or if you're finding bruises on a child, do you think it's going to get better now that they're not in front of anybody else other than their parents? Right, to check and see that they even have the bruises. Right. According to the schools the children attended, nothing was ever reported to them or witnessed by any school employees. What we do have records of is one neighbor in particular um, that the Hearts had a lot of problems with. The neighbor apparently made disparaging comments about the Hearts' sexuality. And the hearts, in turn, made many phone calls against the neighbor for being aggressive. Um, Him making loud noises, 
to bother them and setting his dogs loose on them. That's what Jen Hart claimed. And that we do have documentation that did happen to the couple. But the damage was done. So I think for the reason of the kids not having things work out with school, the fact that they I think they were under investigation and the fact that things weren't things weren't working out with this neighbor, the hearts are going to decide to move. So they contacted a real estate agent and they wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. The Hart family made their move to Westland, Oregon in 2013, where Jen felt they would be more connected to nature. The family now had freedom to do whatever Jen wanted. Because the children were not in school, she would take them on hikes, camping trips that would last sometimes three weeks long, to music festivals and cross-country trip to Connecticut for the 10-year anniversary of Jen and Sarah getting married in Connecticut. But like before, what is posted on social media is very different in real life. Child welfare officials in Oregon were made aware of the arrests and allegations of child abuse that occurred within the Hart family, so they conducted their own investigation. They found a similar situation that the Minnesota officials did. Jen, who was clearly the more domineering of the two, stayed at home, homeschooling the children, and often took them to music festivals for several weeks at a time, while Sarah worked as an assistant manager at a Kohl's retail store. Now, I'm not an expert on homeschooling curriculum in Oregon, but I'm going to take a wild guess that being at a music festival for like 33% of the school year is not a part of it. No, and that goes back to what we said a little while back, you know? How can you make a curriculum for so many different age groups? Right. It doesn't make sense. But also, that is, this can also be seen as neglect. Because if you do pull your children out of school, you have to homeschool them and you have to meet this curriculum. And if you're not doing it, that's neglect. Oh, it totally is neglect because kids need to get an education. Child Protective Services also determined that the hearts were receiving, at this point, just as before, $2,000 a month for their adopted children. Okay, so let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor. Okay, let's get back to the show. Investigators talked to those who the hearts let into their home. They were co-workers of Sarah's. The stories they had to tell were terrifying. They were interviewed separately, and their stories corroborated each other. They said that while in the home, they saw that the children had to raise their hands before speaking and that they got in trouble for laughing at the dinner table. They also both heard Sarah say on separate occasions that now this is something they didn't witness, but that the kids got in trouble for telling Marcus happy birthday. They apparently didn't celebrate the children's birthdays. In a separate incident that the women did witness, the hearts ordered a pizza one night. The children were only allowed to have half a slice each even though there was a lot of pizza left over. The women slept over, and the next morning, the extra pizza, which was left out, was gone. Jennifer was furious. She did not let the children eat breakfast because none of them would admit to who ate the pizza. After the children did not confess, Jen forced them to lie in their beds for five hours as punishment. The women said the whole situation was very uncomfortable. I mean, that's weird. That's crazy. And that's a weird punishment. And to be completely honest with you, I would have been like, yeah, cool, great. I can go to sleep and take a nap for five hours. Well, I, I don't think the kids probably saw no, that No, of course way. not. But I would have. But well, it's as adults, up. we love it, naps. True. Kids but don't. listen, it's really, that's, that's. It's, they're starving. Yeah. yeah. They're so yes. hungry that they're like, sneaking out of bed at night and eating food that they can find. Yeah. It's sad. It's like, what do they have to scavenge in their own house for? Yeah. Like, a half a slice of up. pizza? No, these kids are older. That's that's, it, no that's crazy. When I order pizza for the high schoolers, they have they literally have seven slices each. There's no lie. <laughs> they are animals. How could you do that? It's very bizarre. Still, officials with Child Protective Services ultimately said that they were unable to determine if the women were guilty of neglect, which I think is absolutely like preposterous. According to the documents, they also said that they could not identify a safety threat. It was after this that the women no longer invited people over and continued to keep the children from prying eyes. But even though no one saw them in person, thousands saw them on social media. And it seems that the Hart women were only friends with those that they had met over social media. 
These people played into their fake lives that the couple was projecting. They liked all of Jen's posts about her, her wife, and the kids. Devante seemed to be posted about most frequently. It is shown on Facebook that when he went out in public, he would walk around with free hug signs and sometimes wore a zebra bodysuit. They liked um, putting Devante out there, kind of like as an attention grabber. Okay. And um, now I just want to take an aside here from this podcast because when I was researching, first of all, it was really difficult to research this case because it's very emotional. But a lot of other podcasts have come out about this. There's even a whole series out there, which is great. And I'm not going to say anything is bad. But I will say that a lot of the stories that are out there and podcasts that are out there like to focus on Jen Hart's social media posts. But I don't want to do that. It's not something I want to perpetuate because we don't know the reality of the... Well, unfortunately, we do know a little bit into the reality of those posts and that they're really negative. And Devante was always made out to be someone who was seeking attention like for example when they go to portland he's dancing in the streets and people take pictures he was in the newspaper for it he was in a picture that went viral um at a rally for black lives matter when he was hugging a police officer because of his free hugs poster we don't know if that was something that that child was forced to do to perpetuate jen hart's social media prevalence do you know what I mean? So that's not right. something I want to choose to really put out there on this podcast. Like, I want to focus on just the children and the fact that they were victims in all of this. Definitely. So that's the reason why, I mean, obviously people know the connection to this case and the viral pictures that came out of it before the tragic events that took place. But I'm just explaining why we're not, we're glazing over that part of it. That's all. Okay, back to regular programming. <laughs> so... The people that were obsessed with the hearts really were making Jen post more and more. And of Devante, Jen is going to write that she feels more connected with this little boy than she has anyone in her whole life. A friend that actually got to visit the family in West Lynn, a friend, of course, from social media, said that Devante and Jeremiah were often the only children that she spoke to and the other children were always reading and that she never actually heard Hannah speak. The same woman um, said she attended a Bernie Sanders rally with the family in 2016. Now the risers didn't have enough room so she let Hannah sit on her lap. She asked Jen how old Hannah was and she thought the tiny girl could be no older than eight. She's 14, Jen told her and the woman was shocked. And she looked at all the children and realized that they all looked so much younger than they really were. And that's because they're malnourished and they're all underweight. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. And that's really goes, bad for their development. Yeah, that goes just goes to show you that this is happening to all of those children. Yes. And I think the reason she didn't hear the children talk was because they weren't allowed to talk to people. No way. Yeah. Because they don't want them to say anything that could come back to them and exactly. get them in trouble. Right. The same woman had what I think is a very interesting conversation with Jen Hart. Jen told her that it was a struggle raising these six children. She said they had to leave school because teachers punished them more severely than their classmates. How each child was born addicted to either drugs or alcohol, and they faced many mental and physical problems. She said the children gorged themselves on food because they didn't know any better. Jen said that they were given a rough start because of their genetics. And this is what explains their size and behavior. Then Jen Hart said Marcus, the oldest, would never be able to work. She said he would never marry or have children. They would never have normal lives. I just don't understand why, as they, now you're their mother, that you would go and say something like that. Right. Especially to somebody else. Because when you're a mother or father, you're... I feel like your goal is supposed to be very positive, very upbeat. You're supposed to tell them that they are going to get a job. Right, you're going to end their life yeah, at 14. Right, that you that they are going to have a family and have their own children and be happy. That this is just like we like a weird sort of fucking brainwashing that right. probably went on within the home. Right, like you need us. Look what we've provided for you. Um I get too also that you would need to vent. So that's the one side where maybe she's feeling overwhelmed and she needs to vent. 
But I feel like this is a little different in the situation of Jen Hart, because if you're saying that these children have zero future, then why are you projecting a completely different story online? Exactly. And that's what she's doing. You're not feeding them. No, that's she's not. That's why when they get to eat, they want to eat. And she's using everyone else as uh, t- for being the reason why she's, she, you know, she pulled her kids out of school and she's did all the these martyr. things. That's right. Meanwhile, she's, she's the one. She's just taking what she's doing to them and projecting it onto others. And that's the reason why that they had to move and take the kids out of school. Right. It's BS. That seems to be the cycle. Something goes wrong or people start to look into us. We'll leave school. People are continuing to look into us. We're going to leave the state. Right. And oh, we're going to see we that have, pattern. We have people come over the house. Oh, we're not going to let that happen anymore because people are kind of smelling that there's BS in the air and that something weird's happening. So right. let's just not have any contact with anyone. Right. Jen was also very clear on social media about the lives she saved these children from. In one post about Devante, she said, He was born into a world of drugs, pumping through his newly born body. Weapons and extreme poverty. One would assume his future was bleak. By the time he was four, he had smoked, consumed alcohol, handled guns, been shot at, and suffered severe abuse and neglect. Now, to me, that sounds like she's perpetuating a stereotype that she's claiming she wants to end, but what do I know? I, I Later on, Devante's mother and family are going to come out and say that that entire post is a lie. And that none of those things happened. And it was um, strictly because of the financial situation that the mother was living in and health issues as to why she couldn't provide for her three children. And her family convinced her the best thing was to put her children in foster care. So the fact that you would even say those things is it's like you're using someone's life to send a message that you truly know nothing about it's just it's very bizarre behavior she knows zero about anybody else's life you know this whole thing to get you know them to a good life and a good family but right didn't really work out the way we want they wanted it to right and the fact that they're providing such a horrible life for these kids and you're saying look what we've taken them out of you know well it's not the first time any of us would ever see a hypocritical social media post but this is yeah right it's a pretty serious one So even though Oregon is where Jen wanted to live, a familiar pattern is going to occur. Another anonymous call comes in regarding the physical appearance of neglect with the children. Child Protective Services came around asking questions again. And very quickly, a for sale sign went up in front of their Oregon home. All of Jen's positive posts turned dark in 2016 after the nightclub shootings in Orlando and the election of President Donald Trump. She discussed both of these events frequently and at length. She also spoke about the Black Lives Matter movement and shared that a man yelled a racial slur at Devante in Portland one day. After the 2016 election, she posted pictures of herself, her wife, and their kids at two separate post-election rallies. When people asked her why she would bring her children there, as those rallies could sometimes become dangerous, Jen went completely dark. She actually disappeared from social media for six months. In that time, we have no idea what the children endured, but it's clear that Jen was becoming paranoid and more manic. The next time Jen and Sarah Hart and their six children reappeared on social media was to share the fact that they had moved into a home in Woodland, Washington in 2017. It took three months of living in Washington before someone called the Department of Social and Health Services. The woman who called had some very eye-opening stories to tell. She said that six months earlier, Hannah had jumped out of her second-story window at 1.30 a.m. and bolted inside the home of the woman who was calling. She told the couples that lived in the house next door that her mothers were racist and that she had been whipped with belts. She begged the couple not to return her to her home. The couple did not know their new neighbors, and they thought that maybe the child was overreacting. So they told the girl to go home and that things would get better. However, things got more strange for the couple that lived next door to the hearts. Devante began visiting them in their backyard. They were behind-the-street neighbors. Behind-the-street neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you don't know, that means their backyards connect. That's what I call them. 
Devante would tell them that his parents punished him and his siblings by taking food away, and they were all so hungry. He asked if they could hide food by the fence so that if they ever got hungry, they could go to the fence to eat. And he begged them not to tell his mothers. The couple thought this was strange, but they did put food out. And as time went on, Devante came around more and more often asking for food. Now, the report that this caller made happened on March 23rd, 2018. So they did finally call and say there's something wrong going on, like very wrong going on here. That day, investigators went to the Hart's home. The neighbors that called watched from their window as the investigators walked around the house seeing if anyone was home. The neighbors knew that the Hart's were home, but nobody was coming to the door. It's so bizarre. At this point, like, so now you have investigators, most likely they have a police escort, I'm, I'm guessing, because that's normally how it works. Not right? at this point. No? It's oh. just the first investigation. Well, still. I mean, I, if you're still not going to answer the door, I mean, that would give them probable cause to be like, okay, well, there's definitely something wrong here. Let's take further action. Right. And you that's know? why investigators returned on March 26th with the sheriff's deputy, like you said. Right. Okay. But again, no one was home. The department sent the same people out again the following day to check on the hearts. But again, no one came to the door. Another call came in to the department that day. But this time, it was not from a concerned neighbor. It was from the sheriff's department. They wouldn't need to send investigators out to the hearts' home anymore. Something terrible had happened. Okay, let's take a break to hear from our final sponsor before we continue with that story. The Pacific Coast Highway is one of the most scenic drives in the world, taking drivers past the trees and rocky beaches of Washington and Oregon to the sunny, sandy beaches of Southern California. In Mendocino County, California, the highway snakes around jagged cliffs as the crystal clear waters of the Pacific Ocean crash below. As a driver made his way around the twists and turns, taking in the breathtaking beauty, something caught his eye below. What he had first mistaken for a large boulder turned out to be something so much more sinister as he approached. It was a large vehicle, completely upturned. When the man realized what he was seeing, he immediately called 911. When investigators approached the scene, the investigation took two different pathways. The officers above secured the scene, while those below searched desperately for any surviving victims of the crash. Those above were careful to tape off the area from which the vehicle traveled to have landed where it did on the rocky shores below. There was 75 feet of gravel from the road to the edge of the cliff, and the tire marks went clear through. No skid marks, no signs of braking. It appeared that the SUV was intentionally driven off the 100-foot-high cliff. Those below were facing a scene that they could never have prepared for. As the Yukon XL SUV went over the cliff, it flipped and landed on its roof, causing many of the injuries to those still in the vehicle and the destruction of the vehicle itself, which made it hard to determine how many victims were in the car and who they were. Based off of what was found at the scene and the coroner's report, the following was found to have happened at the bottom of the cliff that day. The first thing that the officers and the crime scene investigators saw were three small children floating in the surf outside of the crashed vehicle. The injuries they sustained from the crash fatally wounded them. Because of the projection of their bodies, it was clear that the children were not wearing their seatbelts. Those children were 14-year-old Abigail and Jeremiah and 19-year-old Marcus. Sarah Hart was found in the back seat of the vehicle. She was identified only because of the wallet she had on her contained her driver's license. The woman in the front seat was unidentifiable because she remained in her seat during the crash. It would later be determined that she was the only one wearing her seatbelt. This was Jen Hart. The officers who found the license of Sarah Hart had called in that this was a vehicle that may be linked to Sarah Hart in some way. They also reported the license plate. It was relayed back to them that the vehicle was registered to Jen Hart and that her and her wife Sarah had six children. The officers knew that they only found three, so where were the others? 
This recovery scene had now become a full-blown search party. However, that day, Hannah, Sierra, and Devante would not be found. As the weeks followed, the crash was deemed a murder-suicide by the sheriff's department. The coroner's report revealed that the children were thrown from the vehicle because they did not have their seatbelts on. They also had extremely high amounts of Benadryl in their systems. They did appear malnourished and not physically to be the ages that they were. Jen Hart had an alcohol level of 0.102, the legal limit being 0.08. Two weeks after the crash, 12-year-old Sierra was found floating in the ocean near the cliff her family's vehicle fell from. A month after the discovery of Sierra's body, on May 9th, a man was walking his dog on the beach. The dog began barking and pulling the man towards an object in the surf. When they got closer, the man found a human foot. Police were unable to identify who it belonged to until October of 2018, when Hannah's biological mother reached out to police and submitted a DNA sample. In January, the results came back. The foot belonged to 16-year-old Hannah. It was all that was ever recovered of her body. Devante, the boy that Jen Hart once wrote she felt more connected to than any other human in the world, has yet to be found. Experts explain that the impact threw the children from the car as they were not buckled in. They were thrown into the ocean and washed away with the tide. I think that's probably one of the saddest sentences that I've ever said in this yeah, podcast. Yeah, it's really sad. I do hope, even though they haven't found Devante, I know that they have declared him dead at this point because they do know that he was with them. I hope that the children are all at peace right now. Yeah, I mean, it's really sad. I mean, you you hope that, you know, when you have kids that come from homes, they go to other families, you hope that they have a good life. And to have all of those children's life cut short, it's so sad to just hear it. And, and in the matter that it was done. Right. Now, when police are going to examine some of the things that were found at the scene, one of them being Sarah's phone, they discovered that while the car was in motion hours before the family died, someone was doing an online research. Um, the searches were later deleted, but they were still there. And they included questions on how you could perform an overdose with over-the-counter medication. She also searched how much Benadryl would be needed to kill a woman of Sarah's weight and how quick would it be and would it be painful to die from drowning or hypothermia. So this does seem to be like something that was definitely planned. Um, the family dog that usually traveled with them had, had not been with them at the time was left back at the house. So the dog usually always traveled with them, but they didn't take the dog with them that time. The woman did buy large bottles of Benadryl and both them and the children had large amounts of Benadryl in their system. The child that had the most Benadryl in his system was Marcus and he had the equivalent of 19 Benadryl pills in his system. That's insane. Yeah. Sarah had the equivalent of 42 Benadryl pills in her system. And I guess Jen drank instead of having the Benadryl. The SUV has, it has like a black box computer. And it showed that the driver had come to a stop at the gravel pullout, 70 feet from the cliff. So she stopped at the road and then accelerated off of the cliff. And the odometer was stuck at 90 miles per hour. So they assumed that was the speed at which she was traveling. I mean, that's insane. I will say this, it's actually crazy that they could actually find that she made the abrupt stop and then one yeah, that was it's a it's a feature of yeah. that Yukon vehicle. Um, the autopsy also revealed that the children were extremely emaciated. Marcus, who was 19 at the time, only weighed 100 pounds. Abigail had bruising on the top side of her leg and her back backside. The bruising was not caused by the crash. It was old healing bruises. So the abuse definitely continued. And when the police searched the Hart residence in Woodland, Washington, after the crash, they found it to be extremely neat, in clean condition, and it was what they said was sterile. Jen and Sarah's bedroom had a double bed, 
uh, the six children slept in two bedrooms. One of the rooms had a single twin-size bed, and the other had no beds at all, only two foam love seats and a padded mat on the floor. So that's how those children were sleeping. So they were sleeping on the floor. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's infuriating. It really is. I know. There was also no items in the house, no games, posters, toys, uh, no personal belongings that would be used by children or teenagers. And despite what was present on social media, there were no family photos anywhere in the house. All the picture frames were empty. Yeah. And that just goes to show you that... The facade that the they facade had The facade that they had created. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's one true. of the saddest cases. And it goes to show that sometimes, unfortunately, the system is broken. And even when people do call, which people... I have to say, I have to give it up to all of the neighbors, the school of it. People call Child Protective Services so many times. Right. But these women were so good at evading the truth and just moving and putting up this false story that they were able to get away with it for so long. And these children were, they were tortured and they their possible futures were stolen from them. Absolutely. And I I agree with you 100%. I think that it did make it easy for them to not get caught or for any action to be done to them to take the children out of the home because of the fact that they were moving so frequently. I mean, they moved right. three times. I, I was, I'm was i almost positive, right? Three times. Yeah. They moved three times. I mean... Well, twice. They were in three different homes. But, but they, they were in three yeah. different homes. That's what I, Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. You know, so th- they moved three times. I guess maybe that made it a little bit more difficult to locate them. Um, but then when they did, I mean, I just don't understand. I think they saw that this last time, it was closing in on them. Like, there was no way to escape from this time. Right. Because I think the children were ready to talk. Yeah. They reached out. That was desperation, Devante and Hannah going to the neighbor's house. Yeah. And then um, I, I also wanted to just take a quick moment to talk about uh, the Devante picture that went viral during like the whole Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting because if you really look at that picture, which I think we should really put up on social media, and we'll put it out for you guys, but when you take a look at that picture, it's like you see right into that kid's soul. You know he's crying not because of Black Lives Matter protest or what may, may be going down during that whole thing, but it's more about you're hugging a police officer because when you're a kid, you think that you know police officers are going to save you from that. I don't know. I think he was... He might have been reaching out for something Well, that's more. what I'm saying. Yeah. He's reaching out to a police officer. Like, he's hugging a police officer, but you can see... That he wants that help. there's inner turmoil. Yeah. You know? I think that another reason why they were able to evade this so many times was because they did go out of their way to adopt all three siblings of both families. So, someone on the outside, especially someone in the foster care system who rarely sees this done, thinks oh, wow, these women are doing something that's really good. So they don't want to question them because from the outside, what Jen and Sarah did is unheard of and looks really good. So I think that was another plan by them. And and it was another plan to they liked playing the martyrs. And I think that that's what they did here very well. But the truth was coming down on them. And I think they knew that when the investigators came to their door that day. And that's why they did what they did. I agree. And it's really sad, and I hope we learn from it. And, you know, our foster care system gets fixed because it's really broken in this country. Yeah, look at all the things that could happen. I mean, yeah, all those kids' lives just cut short. It's it's a real shame, and it makes me really angry. <laughs> I know. It really does. All right, guys, so that um, concludes our episode on the Hart family. And like always, we would appreciate if you would subscribe to us if you like the podcast and give us a review on any of the podcast listening platforms that you're on. Also, if you'd like those extra bonus episodes, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.